Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding, a project manager and research affiliate at the IWC McGill University. We have something a little different to the usual programming in this podcast. We are currently on hiatus from our usual interview style recordings with a planned return in the fall of this year. We have thus taken the opportunity to take stock of some of the research we have been doing at the IWC, particularly over the last year, with a view to telling you all about it, the perspectives of some of our undergraduate research assistants. Thus what follows is four short interviews between myself and four of our RAs who have been working with us over the last year. In the order they appear, they are Wukai Jiang, who is a major in geography, Nadia Fekir, who is a major in environmental studies, Alex Springer, who is a major in international development, and Lilia Scudamore, who is a major in history. They discuss how they got involved with the IWC, the work that they've been doing here, and their plans for their future. I hope you agree that they are a very inspiring group of young scholars. Enjoy. Uh, Wukai, thank you very much for joining us to record this podcast. Uh, it's been great working with you uh, over the last few months. I just want to kind of give, give a sense to all our audience, and I'm going to ask this to everybody as well. What's your uh, kind of research background, what you've been doing at McGill broadly, and then what made you want to get involved with the Indian Ocean World Centre to begin with? So my uh, major is geography and the minor is history. So the, the thing Indian Ocean World Centre do is really like in the intersection between geography and history. Uh, and uh, uh, one of my particular interests is like uh, the connected zone. Like I am interested in the places that connected different area. And uh, I think Indian Ocean Center is doing like global history that is not discussing the, only the separate area. This is uh, also one thing I am interested in it. And uh, I, I know this. Um, this project, of course, uh, by taking one of your class at McGill, uh, it's about uh, just uh, world, world history of, of climate. And uh, yeah, uh, in that class, I, I just, uh, one thing I learned is just uh, climate is an active actor of the history, not, not just a background. And uh, yeah, for most of the history studies, we do not care that much much about the climate, but on the other hand, in the Department of Geography, I, I feel like uh, people also do not care about the, the historical sources. Like there is even no historical geography class in McGill, and uh, this is uh, why I want to study <laughs> and and uh, work here. Thanks very much for bringing up that class. It's one I really enjoyed teaching, uh, mm -hmm. and it's great to have you as a part of it. Too. So, of course, yeah, you mentioned that you uh, you work in geography, and that was something that we wanted to highlight with the project that we um, got you working on here. One of the things that um, we got you immediately onto was to analyze parts of um, the Reaches database, the reconstructed East Asian Climate Historical Encoded series, I should to give its full name, and for mm -hmm. interested listeners, should go back and listen to one of our previous podcasts with uh, Pao K. Wang, who is the lead uh, author on that database. 
Um, is there something that you found particularly interested about the Reaches database? Something that you could you explain what you did with, kind of explain what you've been doing with aspects of it and uh, anything that you found particularly interesting for your wider academic study? Uh, yes, uh, like my, my first impression of uh, Reaches database is overwhelming. <laughs> but like um, I approach it in like, uh, two directions, both quantitatively, uh, quantitatively and qualitatively. Like uh, uh, I organize the database because it is a digitalized database, and it has a detailed data of each place. Uh, um, it has long longitude and latitude, and but it is in separate table. Uh, one thing I did at first is just to congregate them into the same table. So. So that uh, uh, we can map them, uh, like in a time series, map them more, like uh, more easily. Um, yeah, and uh, it includes uh, the precipitation and the drought level. Uh, the The mapping part is one of my favorite part. <laughs> and uh, another thing I do is uh, more more historical research, just to get back to the original record or the like this is a, a digital database i uh, go back to the original chinese um, historical record and uh, find what they what they are saying in this uh sources and uh, yeah just link each each record to the original source there are definitely so many things interesting i am thinking one one thing i find particularly interesting is just uh, although we are studying about the climate record uh, this climate thing uh, like really in fact many things outside climate uh, like one one thing um, seems pretty um, distant from the climate is uh, culture and belief uh, and uh, i i can s uh, see like how climate uh, play a role in the shaping of uh, like Chinese traditional belief, like it is generally thought that there is no such thing like a religion in China, not like as in Europe. But um, I think uh, the the Chinese emperor emperor do believe in something uh, that whatever is effective. Like uh, I I saw this when I investigating the uh, record of. And the record of um, uh, 1657 of uh, French Empire, uh, he just uh, um, after praying for rain and uh, the uh, the the praying does work and there, there is there was a rain and um, he just institutionalized the process of the uh, the pray for the rain and uh, um, yeah and I, I think it, it is not only like uh, the um the progressing of this belief but also uh, we know the first few empire of the Qing dynasty they are learning Han culture this kind of uh ritual is an uh, important part of uh Han culture and I, I think this is also a part of like uh, legitimize their rule and also uh integrating um like more Han people into their empire or something yeah uh, so uh, just this is just an example like how uh, act respond to the climate change is, is so important in the uh, evolution of the empire and the shaping of 
uh, culture and the belief. Like, uh, as I said, although it is climate, it affects so many things outside climate. Uh, thanks for that. And yeah, that, that's a really interesting thing. And you're kind of referring to the uh, mid 17th century there. And that's something that we're really interested in, in terms mm-hmm. of studying the effects of climate. For what, what historians tuning in will know that this is a period of general crisis is often referred to. Um, yeah. And this is something that kind of really comes through in uh, in the sources that you've been looking at. So thanks for mm-hmm. that. So Rukai, um, you obviously don't just work at the IWC, you've got your studies going on. What's next for your studies? What do you, is there anything from the IWC work that you've been doing at the IWC that you see taking forward uh, with you? Um, I think uh, I I learned a lot in terms of both geography and history. Like I learned how to um, process the um, database and archival sources, but uh, specifically, and uh, uh, just uh, from the my initial uh, manipulation of the Excel, uh, the um, the richest database, and to, also to the uh, interpretation and the integration of the Asian Chinese source to the digital record, they uh, just uh, they required like uh, so many both um, learning of the historical context and. Uh, more statistical uh, statistical skills and i really enjoy the process also and uh, uh, the map is uh, like uh, uh, i really like uh, also like the mapping process to specialize this abstract record um, and uh, in terms of my future plan like uh, as i said before i uh, i am pretty interested in uh, relation geography like um in, instead of uh studying this um, like disconnected space i uh investigate the connection between them um and uh, i think uh, indian ocean world center really um provide uh, opportunity to uh, like improve my, my skill in this area and i i will have some field uh, study in um, like Indian Ocean region, uh, but uh, I uh, my future study might not be in this region, but still uh, uh, pretty much uh, related to connection. And uh, this area is like uh, Central Asia. It's the um, uh, the place uh, where Silk Road, uh, Asian Silk Road goes. I think many. Um, any skills I learned in Indian Ocean Center will be still effective in my like future interest in this area. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Rika. It's really nice to hear. You didn't have to say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Okay>. So, but uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and I'm really glad that you found it fruitful. And you alluded to it that, uh, that you're off to uh, do some field study in uh, in the Indian Ocean Center in, in the Indian Ocean region. Sorry. Yeah. Um, listeners may be just interested to know that you're about to head off to uh, Singapore for some research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wish you the best uh, on that trip, and uh, I hope we get to work together again uh, down the line. Right. Uh, so thank, thank you, you so very much. much yeah, thank you for providing me so nice opportunity. Hey, thanks for your hard work. Nadia, thank you so much for joining me and agreeing to this little discussion. 
it's been great working with you the last few months. Um, I just want to kind of give a, give a flavor for our listeners. What are your research interests uh, and what made you join the IOWC um, earlier this year? Yeah, so um, I just finished my second year in environmental studies at McGill, but I was also minoring in history. And the history minor was purely out of interest on my part. I've done a lot of classes in it especially in North America, specifically Canada, I kind of just stumbled upon the um, IOWC because my roommate brought me to a an event hosted by the History Student Association at McGill. And I, I saw you uh, give a talk on, I believe it was rainfall patterns in East Africa. And that for me was extremely mind boggling that history and environment, specifically climate, could combine in such a way. And the way you were kind of presenting the data and how it served to give a bigger picture of other processes at the time, especially, you know, how it influenced agriculture and stuff. That to me really resonated with me. And I instantly started researching the center and I gave, I sent out an email to you, a complete cold call. And I was like, is there anything I can do at the center? I would love to get involved somehow. And, and at the same time, I was taking a class on the anthropology of nature and how different groups throughout history and even contemporary groups um, perceive nature and specifically with regards to like resource extraction. And that also spoke to me in a similar way is a different way of thinking about environmental studies that wasn't super focused on mitigating climate change, for example, which of course that's crucial and extremely important but I think if we can't get to like the historical roots of why we are in this situation and why, you know, our, our climate is changing and in, in some instances degrading, I think it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid over an infected wound. You're never going to really get to the source of it. So for me, this past semester has just been about kind of opening my eyes to what is out there in terms of environmental research and finding what speaks to me and what you know fulfills me and i think looking at history is is a way forward in an, in another way that i hadn't experienced before and so i was really excited to be offered the position at the center and i've really enjoyed my work so far wonderful that's really great to hear right well you alluded to it right at the end there um you've enjoyed your work so far so uh, what have you been working on perhaps you can give a, a, sen- a sense of that to our audience as well yeah, so this semester I started researching Cape Town in South Africa, what is present day Cape Town, um, with the f- arrival of the first Dutch settlers and the East India Company. And we know from like a social history perspective that they wanted to settle at the Cape for a rest stop between the Netherlands and um, present day Indonesia. And our our understanding of why the Cape eventually evolved into a, a, you know, as a settlement instead of just a rest stop is kind of patchy. From what I understand, it's the company started quickly, like losing money. It wasn't a very fruitful, I guess, um, rest stop. It wasn't getting, it wasn't serving their needs, which led to them eventually dismissing a lot of their men uh, who went to go settle further inland. And as we know today, these are the first Afrikaners, which um, for better or for worse, they've been integral to the history of South Africa. And so the main you know, research question that we were looking at was 
were these failings, um, were they climate related? And if so, was this crisis particularly bad during the years of settlement? Or is it just like a, a mismatch between Dutch agricultural practices and, and the normal weather of the Cape? And so to get the answers to these questions, um, I looked through the, the journals of the colonial administrator Jan van Riebeck. And these diaries were they were very um, robust in, in information. He logged the weather every single day for 10 years and kind of in great detail. I mean, relatively speaking, I he gave an indication of what the wind direction was nearly every day, the strength of it, rainfall. Um, and interestingly enough, he I think he kind of had a good sense of, especially by the end of it, about what was normal and regular um, in terms of wind or, or rainfall pattern, depending on the season. And so he kind of gave some commentary as well, a lot of the time being like, these strong winds that we're seeing are very regular for the summer months versus some years he'd be like, well, these are super strong and super not in season for what we expect. So it was super, there was super, so many details in it. And um, yeah, and now I'm finished that like initial stage of, of researching it. And I just started working with QGIS and this is the first time I'm ever doing anything of the sort. So it's really interesting. Um, and basically we're working on a, like a time series map that kind of shows, shows wind direction over the course of these 10 years and, and the strength of it as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been a really good semester full of really interesting discoveries on that front. That's wonderful. And I really look forward to seeing this uh, time series uh, come to fruition. Well, I kind of want to ask uh, another question, um, just kind of related to your overall trajectory. What's uh, next for you? Um, is there anything about the IWC you'll be able to take with you into your next, uh, in the next okay, so short to me medium to long term in, uh, in uh, university? Yeah. So I think for any undergraduate, the idea of like, what do you want to do in the future is is a very scary question. Um, I feel like most of us don't know. <laughs> and I think we're trying to like put off going out into the real world for as long as possible. So I think for the next two years, I'm just going to try to kind of hone in on specifically research. I, I'd love to pursue a, an undergraduate thesis in something related with environmental history. That's sort of what I've that's kind of stuck with me and, and you know, I enjoy the most in my studies. Very short-term future, however, I'm headed off to Barbados in a few weeks and I'm doing a field semester there to sort of explore local agricultural practices. Um, and I think in terms of my work at the IOWC, that's going to be like a crucial foundation for me just because it will be really interesting to see the lasting impacts of of colonialism versus sort of what managed to kind of slip through the cracks and what local knowledge has really stuck with the locals and just in general I feel like this research has really nuanced my understanding of of colonialism and what we see in the diaries are the Dutch are very keen to sort of take resources from the native people um, in fact this has been a point of contention just because the natives aren't able to kind of meet this demand of of cattle that the Dutch place on them and it's very reminiscent of a, a paper I had to read for one of my classes earlier this semester about the the various stages of ethnobiology. Um, 
there's an ethnobiologist who proposed that the history of the field sort of begins with this very um, exploitative way of, of dealing with local knowledge. And they they don't have much of an interest of actually working together with, you know, the native people of South Africa. It's it's very it's very exploitative in the sense that they they just need cattle from them and they're very eager to kind of push them away and and allow them to kind of form a, a Dutch settlement there. Um, so now, according to to Han, who was the ethnobiologist who penned this paper, um, we are sort of in a stage where we are more eager to to learn from local communities just for the sake of learning from them and not necessarily for any end goal. And so I will be working in a in a botanical garden in Barbados as well. So I'm very eager to kind of explore what that looks like in a in a real world setting. And finally, I just started with GIS, as I mentioned, and I would really like to continue exploring that. My knowledge right now is very rudimentary, but McGill does offer quite a few classes on it. So I would love to take more and and see what else I can do. It's a very valuable tool, um, not just in geography studies, but in many fields. And when I was interviewing for this position, actually, uh, you, Dr. Gooding, you you told me that if you know GIS, you'll impress any historian over the age of 35 and I think that's really stuck with me. And I'm, you know, I would love to learn more about it and see what other ways it can be used. I do wonder what our listeners are going to think about that comment. But there we go. <laughs> Feel free to cut it out if you need to. <laughs> oh, no, we'll keep it in. We'll find out how uh, robust our listenership is uh, with that one. Great. Uh, and I look forward to it. Um, and I definitely stand by it, just for the record. Um <laughs> All right, um, Nadia, thank you very much. I really, I'm really excited to hear how your research progresses. And I very much, I like this point that you've drawn from your research about uh, ethnobiology and with the paper by Han, which I am not familiar with and would love to become so. Um, yeah. But I, but what you kind of, you're kind of thinking about doing learning for learning's sake and having practical applications. I think your idea of like pursuing GIS, that's one way that things often become practical is by mapping them and visualizing things. So if maybe this is some something that you'll be able to become a, a, a pioneer of, because I don't think this is if if this is the state of ethnobiology at the moment, and then it then it, and it's looking for some kind of practical solution or practical applications. GIS may be one way of uh, thinking about that, and I'd be very interested to hear more. So thank you very much for this, and thank you for all your hard work um, over the last few months. And uh, I re- and have a great time in Barbados. Thank you. And I hope we get to work again together in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And I shared this with you before, but thank you again for just giving me this opportunity to be able to do something so, you know, fulfilling to me and just fascinating um, so early on in my undergraduate degree is, I'm so thankful for it. Thank you. And I'm thankful for you too. Thank you. So it's my pleasure to uh, introduce you all to um, my colleague, Alex Springer, who's been working with um, us at the IWC for just over a year now, and is due to be with us for the remainder of the summer as well, which we're all very excited about. Um, Alex, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, discuss what you've been doing at the IWC and what you plan to do uh, in the future as well. Firstly, I'd just like to ask you more about your kind of your background. Um, how did you get involved with the IWC? What attracted you to it? What have you been doing at McGill more broadly? 
Hi, it's uh, it's great to be here. Exciting to be on a podcast. So I just graduated from my undergraduate degree. Um, I have a honors degree in international development and a minor in history. So what brought me to the IOWC in the first place was I took a class that Gwyn taught, just a topics class on the Indian Ocean world. Um, and he kind of just gave like a survey of the history from beginning to end, where the idea of the Indian Ocean world came from. And I really loved the class. I thought Gwyn was a great teacher. Um, I really engaged with all of the material and had a great time doing it. And when the semester ended, I wanted to do my thesis the next year. And I approached Gwyn to be my thesis advisor. And at the same time, I saw that he ran a research center studying the same thing he taught in the class, asked for a job. And here I am a year later. So yeah, that's how I got here. And I'm, I was really interested in my international development degree, my history degree in kind of observing the interactions between humanity and the environment. I'm, I'm kind of looking at it from more of a like current day, present day idea where I'm, I want to see how the economy and kind of globalization interact with the environment to produce climate change. But that's exactly what the IOWC does just from a historical perspective. We're looking at it more in the past rather than the present. And it can inform a lot of the understandings I will take away and apply to when studying how climate change is being affected by human development in the present and then how environmental like interactions hurt humanity in turn. Awesome. I find it very uh, reassuring and very encouraging from my perspective as someone who's trained as a historian, as someone who is mostly concerned with the present from their own research is really engaging with this historical stuff. And you have done so well while you're here. And when you kind of discuss that background, that makes me feel even more guilty about the first project we put you on to, <laughs> which um, maybe you could uh, say some things about, but I'll just give you a quick introduction. It involved learning how to read 17th century script. So could you tell us some more about that project? Uh, yeah, so the, the first project I worked on was I was tasked with studying a specific El Nino event in the 17th century. So primarily what I did was I read old English documents from the East India Company at the time. They were all handwritten script. A lot of them were water damaged. And I was looking through them, parsing for any comment on weather or crop patterns or kind of prices of goods to see how El Nino was affecting the economy and the political stability at the time. So it was a lot of just reading and it took me two weeks to figure out how to read old English. I'd never learned cursive in school. I was like, this is going to be an interesting job at first if I'm just going to be reading old documents the whole time, but it definitely picked up and I got to do some more interesting things on later on. And I even, I even learned a lot in that project with what I got to do after the readings. After I got through all of that, I learned a lot on Excel and how to kind of operate it. And I learned a lot about how to use GIS and stuff like that through the old English. So maybe it started off a little boring, but you, you're able to do so much with the information you garner from these texts that I was able to, to do some cool things. Yeah, so you mentioned Excel there. I mean, you made, made these really awesome pivot charts. Can you explain like the process of turning old English script on a digitized 17th century document into these wonderful pivot charts? Like that is a kind of a big jump to make. And it's something that I think you really pioneered and did off your own bat. Um, I definitely have to thank my dad a little bit for that. So basically, I remember after I had charted all of the, the stuff, we 
we discussed creating an index for how to mark the data. Um, it was a scale of negative three to three, negative three being a really bad drought, three being a really bad flood. So once I was able to mark all of this data along these lines and put dates in with it, I was sitting on a, a plane, I was sitting next to my dad and he's an Excel wizard. And basically he was just showing me how to make pivot tables and do all of this cool analytical stuff that Excel does for you. And what was great about the pivot tables is it allows you to like really modify how you're looking at the data and you can look at what you're collecting in a bunch of different ways. So I was able to compare, you know, time of see like the time of the season with drought versus flooding events and to see, you know, what correlated with what in terms of time of year versus events. I could look at specific like pricing stuff for um goods that were bought to see how they were impacted by the time of the year. And uh, the Excel stuff was definitely more useful for work I did later on disease where I had more data at hand, but I was able to learn the basics in that project. So it was kind of a great opportunity to learn because it was a smaller sample size of data and there wasn't as much that I had to parse through. Whereas later projects, I was working with thousands of data points. And if I was trying to learn there, I would have been overwhelmed by the like excess of data that I had. It was really incredible. The other thing I was really impressed about the really useful about the pivot tables was that because you're covering the impact of the hot of an El Nino event, ostensibly over the entirety of the region that the East India Company were the English East India Company reporting on, it's covering like much of the Indian Ocean world, which means you've made comparisons over large areas, made that much easier. Um, just to, to kind of visualize and to put in your in your mind, it was just a really really useful, a great methodological development um, for us. All right, as so you mentioned it. Um, your next project, um, you collected thousands upon thousands of data points. Um, and this was your second project. And this is about um, disease in um, India. Actually, you've got a publication about this this out already. Um, do you want to talk to us about the, the, the publication that you have in um, Niche uh, and kind of the processes that you um, went through to uh, end up at this publication? Yeah, so Niche was kind enough to let me publish a little just entry about what I was doing with this research. So basically, what I published on Niche was a, an explanation of the wealth of online resources that multiple libraries in Europe and in Southeast Asia have published um, of primary sources throughout history that have been kind of collected by these libraries over time. And there are these huge databases of resources that um, specifically deal in disease. And the, the resources themselves are not great. They're a little disorganized and each author has a different style of writing, but within these hundred page reports they have on specific diseases in specific years, they have a lot of statistics on actual diseases. How many people are getting sick? How many people are dying um, per square mile per thousand people? So you're able to parse a lot of information from these data reports. If you spend the time sorting through them and manually inserting numbers onto Excel from these um, typed up reports from the 19th century. And as an RA, that is exactly what my job is. So I found these reports through um, Gwyn's suggestion that he wanted to look into why people were um, migrating to Mauritius in the 19th century. He gave me just one log that showed how many people moved per year. And he wanted to relate it to disease. So I naturally just went online. I was as a Gen Z student who grew up with technology and computers. I just Googled databases of disease of India in the 19th century. And all of these different databases popped up. And I was able to just parse through them and look through them. It took me about two months to collect. I think it was around 
1200 data points of different statistics on underselling yourself it was 10,000 it was was it 10,000 wow. yeah i've got it in front of me i've i've forgotten all of the manual inputting i did them no wonder it took me <laughs> two months to do all of that jesus um but basically after i was able to input all of these different points which was a month by month accounting of total number of deaths usually per province and then within per province they had additional statistics of per 1000 people how many people got sick and per one mile, like how many people per one mile got sick. So I inputted all of these statistics. And then again, using the pivot tables that my dad so kindly taught me how to do, I was able to separate all of these points based on province, based on year, uh, based on time of the year to really get a good comparison of what it is actually looking like. And we were able, really able to visualize it before I went into the next step which was making maps of all of this data on QGIS. Um, and then, so after I did all this process, after I created maps, which was a hellish process that I'm sure we'll get into, I was able to um, publish this project through Niche and also on the IOWC's website where the maps are today. So it was a great opportunity. Um, big reason I got into grad school was these projects that I got to work on and actually like lead myself. Um, and I learned a lot about how academia functions through these projects and kind of the necessary steps it takes to get things published and what you need to look for in this process to kind of streamline everything and make sure you're not messing up at one stage or another, because there's a lot of places you can go wrong and go in the wrong direction. Wonderful. I want to clarify something for our listeners as well. When we talk about niche, we're talking about the network in Canadian history and environment. Uh, and we'll make sure that there's a uh, link to uh, Alex's um, post uh, in, in, the, in, in this uh, academic blog. Um, in the description for uh, this podcast as well. Yeah, so the maps. This is this is a monumental effort. You're turning these ten thousand, the, this just uh, just over ten thousand data points uh, into a time lapse. How did that go? So this is on the IOWC's website. Um, this was probably the the greatest learning project and process that I've done at the IOWC because going into this, I really had no idea how to use GIS and. What me and Nod uh, fondly refer to YouTube University at, at work um, was a huge help in this process, as well as Nod himself. But basically, you have to take all of these data points and you have to format them in a specific way in terms of the index you're using on um, deaths per 1,000 people. And then also Excel and QGIS are lovely and they hate historians um, in that you cannot insert, they do not recognize dates if they're before 1900. So you have to go and mess with all of the dates to make them work in some manner on QGIS because you can't just use regular date formatting. And once you do that, there's a slew of problems using QGIS. You have to make sure all of your equations are right for 10,000 data points. You have to make sure that you're using right, the right locations, that all of these data points are accurate in and of themselves with the equations that you're using on Excel. Um, and then there's a ton of different formatting stuff. You have to consider the size of the dots. If you want to compare smallpox with cholera, you need two different size dots. You don't want them to overlap at the same time. You have to consider using monthly data points versus um, yearly data points, because sometimes you only have statistics on the year by year of the disease versus in some places you had month by month. So you have to figure out how to balance those two within the same map. This process took me about a month to do. I watched a lot of YouTube on how to make a map, how to make a time lapse, how to combine the two on top of each other. 
Um, and then I had to figure out how to put it into a video form because you cannot do this through QGIS. They only give you individual maps. And so if you're creating a time lapse over a hundred years, you need to create a hundred different pictures and then insert them into another software to make a video. That process took me like a week to figure out how to do. But again, it was a super, super useful learning experience. I now am an expert in QGIS. I can make a map in a heartbeat. I've messed up so many times and had to restart that I know the process inside and out because once you mess up, you usually have to restart completely. It's not really easy to be like, oops, I made a mistake two steps ago. Let me undo. You have to kind of go back and be like, well, that was wrong. Now I have to restart. Um, but it was a great, a great learning experience. Again, now I'm very proficient. Yeah, it's a brutal one. <laughs> it's a brutal thing. But once you know how, it is fun to do. Uh, and yeah, you just smash those maps out. All right. So obviously, I mentioned at the beginning when introducing you, we've got you for the summer, but we uh, know that we're also going to be saying goodbye at the end of it. Um, please tell us what you're doing next. What, what are your yeah. plans? So I am going to Imperial College London, where I'll be studying conservation science and practice. It's a really cool degree where I get to, it's very multidisciplinary, kind of like my undergraduate degree, where I get to understand conservation science inside and out. What conservation science um, is for the viewers who may not be aware is studying how to protect endangered species, um, threatened ecosystems to better like support the functioning of nature alongside humanity. So for example, um, one thing I could focus on in my degree is you know how to curb deforestation and convince um, local populations how to not deforest as much. Um, and this is a huge problem with lots of different variables in it. So you, part of my degree will be learning each of the different variables. I'll have to, you know, learn statistics and QGIS science to be able to map and understand what's actually going on with deforestation. I'll have to learn behavioral science to learn how to convince local populations not to, for example, deforest as much, even if there's an economic incentive not to. I'll have to learn some animal biology, some environmental sciences. There'll be some economics involved as I have to learn the history of areas and the economic staples of the area. So it'll be a multidisciplinary degree, much like what I've been doing at the IOWC and what I've studied at McGill, which is kind of a multidisciplinary study of the interactions between humanity and the economic and political realms and nature and how they interact. So it's like an incredibly exciting degree. I'm really pleased. It's wonderful to hear that you're going to continue this kind of multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary approach. And I have to I have to thank the, the IOWC too, because research is such an important part of getting into grad school. You learn a lot about academia, how it functions, and a lot of graduate schools really value having their students having done research prior because you have such a better understanding of kind of how it all works and how the system functions and all of the bureaucracy and kind of process of getting something out and studying it. And um, what I've learned at the IOWC and the opportunities the IOWC have given me is a, a big reason that I got into Imperial in the first place and that I'll be able to continue studying. Thank you very much for your contributions as well. It's been great to have you here for the last year uh, and great to know you as well. Um, and yeah, we're looking forward to the rest of the summer and really massive good luck uh, beyond that too. I'm sure we'll uh, stay in touch. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Hi again, everyone. It is my pleasure to introduce Lilia Scudamore, uh, who has been an RA at the IWC since the beginning of this year. 
again, as we have asked everyone else, it'd be really great just to firstly hear about you. What made you, um, Lilia, get involved with the IWC? What's your background? What are you studying at um, McGill? Uh, yeah, and how did that um, lead you lead you here? Yeah, um, well, I just finished my second year at McGill. I'm a major in history with minors in economics and political science. Um, and I began to get involved with the IOWC by first going to a History Students Association event in which I saw Dr. Gooding present on his research. And for me, based on the other history courses I'd previously taken, environmental history was a completely new concept for me. Um, and hearing about ways to study history in such a vastly different discipline and apply it to things such as climate change was a really new idea for me. Um, and so I became really interested in that and sort of started looking at the IOWC's other databases and just research. Um, and then about a month later, I just received an email from the history department that the IOWC happened to be looking for research assistance at that time. So um, I went ahead and applied and have been involved since February of this year. So it's been been really great and a lot of new, interesting work for me. Wonderful. Think about that. How do you have you done any um, kind of work on kind of the Indian Ocean world before? Um, kind of kind of knowing a little bit the answer to that. How did you kind of get in, get interested in, in the Indian Ocean world as well? And how did this relate to what you've been studying uh, or what you've been researching while here at the IWC too? Yeah, so um, in fall of last year, I took a class on, it was just Intro to South Asian History. I mean, it was a survey class. So there was a lot of content there that was, again, much different than other history classes, both just on disciplines that I've studied before at McGill. And then also growing up in the United States, learning South Asian history is not something that's uh, pretty uh, normal. And so what I had learned had been a very general overview. And so I absolutely loved that course, um, but wanted to get more involved and learn more about it, especially because it was something so different. But I've actually been doing my research not on South Asia, but on East Asia and focusing exclusively on China um, in the 19th century in my research so far. But yeah, let's hear some more about that research then. Again, like Alex, who, who we've just heard from, I know I set you up with some archives. Could you tell us about um, those archive materials and what you've kind of been looking for in them? Yeah, so um, I've been going through missionary books from the Church Missionary Society between, I believe I started 1834 through 1880. Um, and I'm looking for similar things as Alex talked about, but looking for mentions of different environmental data in that research. So things like crop patterns, disease, mentions of rainfall, drought, floods, um, fluctuations in prices that might signal other environmental changes, and then recording those into Excel spreadsheets over time. Um, and the primary reason for that um, as I'm sure we've kind of talked about as well, is we are working with the Reaches database on ways to uh, verify the Reaches database and work with it because it is such a wide breadth of documentation, but also using human sources for environmental data has a lot of different benefits and drawbacks compared to other ways to research the climate. So especially using English missionaries who have arrived in China beginning in the 1830s, uh, and their experiences for the next 50 years is another way to compare it to both Chinese governmental data and then other models that we have. Yeah, and you've had a monumental effort covering 50 years of missionary correspondence is a significant archival effort. And uh, it's been amazing to see how it's come through. Are there any kind of patterns you noticed in that missionary sources that I think would be that you might be interesting to researchers? Uh, or what, what explains the years where there are more data and what explains the years that there were less data, if you could have any idea on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, when they first get there, there's very little data from those years. And I think there's a couple of factors that one, they have very few missionaries there just in the first place. So what is being written back is much more limited. There's also something I noticed, I believe it begins around the 1840s where correspondence becomes a lot faster. And so there's way more um, to go through. And I believe they mentioned the introduction of steamships on the routes that they're going on, which is different as before. Steamships existed, but I don't believe they're going into um, the Indian Ocean as frequently until then. And so that vastly increased the level of communication research that there is, which is fantastic. Um, and then also just as they spread around China and settle more posts, there's significantly more letters and journal entries, and um, they make tables as well, tracking things such as temperatures and rainfall that are really, really interesting. Other things that I found going through as far as just patterns in the data is there are specific years. For example, 1843 and 1844 in Hong Kong, there's mentions of just vast death um, among both native and foreign populations there. Um, and now we know that was definitely a massive malaria epidemic um, that killed, I believe, what the missionaries report is one in every three people. I think the actual number is slightly less, but still a huge proportion of people. And I think like Alex mentioned, for me, I found events like this that they mentioned really interesting. I ended up doing more research on that for a history course I was in. And that event structured Hong Kong today, both its geographical landscapes um, and the socioeconomic setup of Hong Kong reflects this specific event, as well as other outbreaks. So for example, I don't quite get here in my data, but we know that there was a huge Black Plague outbreak that started in the early 1900s um, that also shaped this. So seeing those connections and how those have affected the world today, I find really significant. And it's probably the most interesting part of my research. That's absolutely fascinating and not actually something I was completely familiar with. You made all those connections. Uh, and I want to kind of ask you kind of one thing. Did you get the sense that the missionaries um, in 1843, 44 were conscious of the potential long term influence that the outbreak of malaria would have on their settlement and on just on Hong Kong more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. They write about um, whether or not they're going to stay there, if they're going to stay in China at all, um, especially in the early reports. They speak about the climate being unhealthy and that whether or not it would be advantageous for their missionary efforts to stay there or turn attentions more to other places such as India. They establish in Japan just a bit after they do in China. And they also compare these populations in quite um, racist ways as well. Um, and so seeing those in text and what they're saying, comparing these populations that they're colonizing has also been interesting, not something I'm tracking as much, but something that I think is important just to understand in these archival sources. Yeah. And it obviously means we've got more work to do as well as a team here at the IWC, um, because obviously these kind of references are going to be entirely different to the kind of references that inform the Reaches database, which is a database of environmental phenomena um, composed um, or developed through close analysis of official Chinese sources. So it's the different kind of ways of reporting. So it's going to be really great to work with you uh, moving forwards to kind of establish how and in what ways they report things differently uh, and, how, and how this might influence how certain things are recorded. And then also after that, how they will be mapped um, as well. Thank you so much for your work, Lilia. Obviously, you're still McGill. You're still an undergraduate student. You mentioned you're just come to the end of your second year. Uh, what are your plans moving forwards? Yeah, my plans are largely up in the air. I'm hoping to finish my undergraduate degree in this upcoming year and then continue 
research and history work afterwards. But what that looks like for me, I still really don't know. As I mentioned, environmental history, now I'm much more familiar with than I was six months ago. Um, But it's something that's still really new for me, but I think can be applicable to other fields that I tend to study more often. Um, And so I'm hoping to get my master's degree um, and at McGill to stay involved with IOWC um, and other departments here that I find super interesting. Um, And I think the intersectionality of my disciplines is something that I'm going to be working on and trying to figure out how to involve more in my research going forward. I've tended to lean more towards and take courses in histories of sexuality and gender. And I think going through this material as well, these are things that do come up. But when environmental catastrophes occur, um, how that affects both like mortality rates, fertility rates, and also just gender roles within families and communities is noted in these records and something that I find really interesting. So that's possibly something I'll pursue further, but I really don't know as of now. That is perfectly fine. But uh, this, all these ideas, um, however sketchy they might be right now, all sound really interesting. Um, it's been great having you at the IWC uh, and I look forward to working with you moving forward. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 